from the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Kicking off another great week. Father John Tregilio is in the house, ready to take your questions. The number is 833-288-EWTN. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Ace McKay handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. You can grab one of these open phone lines. Your number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us that email at openline@ewtn.com. And our hostess, he is every Monday, the aforementioned Father John Tregilio. Are you going to make it over there? Aforementioned, yes. Yeah, yeah, you've been aforementioned. People wait their whole lives for that sometimes. <laughs> so we got an email here from Denny in Wake Forest, North Carolina. He asks, during Mass, during the communion offering, after the Lord's Prayer, at the end of both responses, why don't we end with amen? Okay. Because <laughs> there's another part of the prayer. <laughs> <coughs> I know when, we, when you pray the, the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, by yourself, or when you're praying in the, the rosary, you conclude it with amen. What's interesting is so many people are used to not saying, because we don't say it at Mass, when they pray the rosary, they forget to say amen. and uh, Or even like when we're doing Liturgy of the Hours, and you know technically you, you should say an amen except for when it's at Mass, because uh, there's that other part of the prayer uh, that's considered part of it. And so the amen then concludes the prayer uh which like i said you know there's just a little bit more to go there 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number 833-288-3986 wide open phone lines for you um matt in wisconsin writes in my wife and i have been needing to bring communion more frequently to parents who are homebound and would appreciate any catechesis on proper form and manner to do this. Specifically, should we receive communion ourselves first or present the picks first for communion to be placed in it? If we present the picks first, should we place the picks in a pocket before receiving communion ourselves? We have gone to communion both ways, and there are no issues, but we would like to be pious and conduct ourselves in the most appropriate way possible. Well, I'm very glad that they asked, and that's a good sign of their love and devotion for the Blessed Sacrament, but also for their their, uh, parents. Um, The proper way would be, uh, before Mass, to give your empty picks 
uh, to the priest who's celebrating the Mass, and then he would put an, an unconsecrated host in there and consecrate it in the pics, or he would put the pics, or, or he would put the a consecrated host uh, in the pics at, at the end of Mass and then uh, give it to you. Uh, the proper way is, is for the priest to give uh, the host in the pics to the person who's an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. Now, I know some parishes don't do it that way. They have a person come up and pull out the pics, and then the priest or the deacon or the extraordinary minister of Holy Communion who's helping at Mass uh, puts the consecrated host in there. Um, the proper procedure that's stated in the ritual would be that uh, it's given to them uh, typically at the end of Mass or right after Mass. Uh, getting it while you're in the communion line, one of the problems is that sometimes the person who's giving communion doesn't know that you're actually authorized to bring Holy Communion to the sick. And anybody can get a pix uh, off Amazon or any place and just show up at Mass and you know, that's the, one of the problems. Now, obviously, if you're in a small parish or you're going to the daily mass and the priest knows you and that's the procedure he set up or that's what the diocese uh, allows, no problem. But uh, optimally, the best thing would be is you go to communion normally at mass and then you receive the pics uh, from the priest or the deacon. Uh, you should not go uh, to the tabernacle yourself uh, again unless, you know, the priest has set up some other a provision. You know, one thing that I've seen in various places, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, is that the extraordinary ministers will um, rush, might be a little too strong of a word, but will uh, uh, very quickly make their way to the tabernacle after the procession has cleared their pew, and uh, will have a sacristan distribute from the tabernacle to the extraordinary ministers. Yeah, that's, uh, again, it should be the priest or the deacon because they're the ordinary ministers of Holy Communion. And if they're still uh, in the vicinity, if they're in the building, so to speak, then that's what should be done. The only time that people should go in there themselves is when the priest or deacon is not available and the person needs to bring communion to the sick uh, and it's not uh, possible or it's a grave inconvenience to get the priest, but when people just come and go as they like, and again, I don't think that anybody plans to do that. The problem is maybe bad catechesis or uh, training, either at the, at the parish or, or at the diocesan level. You know, when you mentioned has not left the building, it occurred to me that <laughs> wouldn't it be cool? I bet in I bet in Eastern Europe there are some priests named Elvis, don't you think? <laughs> I think there are. At least their middle name is. Yeah, Father Elvis. How cool would that be? <laughs> Uh, Jordan writes in, are Protestant baptisms valid? Uh, that's a very good question. And uh, they are if they use natural water that's uh, either by, uh, in we call a, a infusion, where the person has the water poured over them, or immersion, where they're actually uh, dunked in the water. And the words must be said, I baptize you, or I baptize Frank, uh, that's his name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the problems is that somewhere along the line, and probably about 30, 40 years ago, there was some experimentation in which the formula was changed, and in some places they wanted to be um, conscientious, they claim, uh, of, to avoid uh, what they 
alleged was sexism. So instead of saying Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they said in the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. Rome said then and says now that that is completely, totally invalid. You must say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You must mention all three persons of the Trinity, and you must use the first person pronoun, I. If you say, we baptize you, that is invalid. Uh, and it must be water, and they must pour the water if they're pouring it over the head, uh, or if they're going to immerse the person, completely immerse them, not just the feet, not just the, you know, the back end. I, I've seen some priests unfortunately do that, where they take the baby and kind of skim his tush across the water. <laughs> that's not baptism, okay? Uh, that's something else. But uh, uh, a valid baptism would be, like I mentioned, and for a while there, almost all the, the Protestant baptisms were considered valid, but now, you know, they're looking at each of these individual cases, and if there's any doubt, then what happens is the, if the person's coming into the church, or we've had a couple of priests who were baptized uh, in, in a Protestant church, then they had to get conditionally baptized uh, just as a precaution. Um, what about, but, but the, the Bible says, Father John, <laughs> what? to baptize in Jesus' name, doesn't it? It says that, and it is in Jesus' name, but it's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, now, it's true that there were some baptisms which, you know, first started with in the name of Jesus, but Holy Mother Church, who was, who was established by Jesus himself, uh, made the authoritative uh, decision that that would be the valid formula, just like uh, the formula for um, consecrating the, the bread and the wine at Mass. So, that may have been an earlier uh, version, but the, the church is now determined, uh, and that goes back to apostolic ties, by the way, uh, that that's the formula that must be intact. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. I'm going to I'm going to tell you, this is, this is a, a corporal work of mercy. I'm telling you, everybody's going to call back after the bottom half of the hour, the lines are going to get full, and we're not going to get to everybody. So if you want us to be sure to get to your question, call us now, 833-288-EWTN. I'm trying to help. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, Mother Angelica is is noted, I think, most for uh, her unfailing love for her spouse, uh, our Blessed Lord, um, and reverenced him in the Blessed Sacrament with the entire uh, with the entirety of her being. But really, if you wanted to practically sum Mother Angelica up in a couple points, I think it would be. 
the Eucharist and pro-life. That was Mother Angelica in a nutshell. And EWTN Pro-Life Pulse is a weekly recap that we give you on top pro-life headlines, moving our nation and world. The mainstream media misses these oftentimes. Simply visit EWTNnews.com slash pro-life and sign up today. Stay connected and get that pro-life pulse in your email box every week. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Faith is watching us on YouTube, and she wants to know, can you explain the difference between veneration and worship of the saints? Many of my non-Catholic friends don't understand the difference. Okay, well, that's, I'm glad they're asking that question because even Catholics get that confused. Uh, the first commandment makes it absolutely clear that we can only adore and worship God, God alone, because uh, he is the supreme being. Now, we're also told in the same Ten Commandments, in number four, if you're using the Catholic Lutheran uh, numbering system, that honor your father and mother. Honor, or another word of honor is venerate, we give to uh, Mary and the saints uh, because like honoring your mom and dad, that is not considered adoration or worship. Uh, it's showing high respect. Now, Mary gets the highest respect, the highest honor. Uh, we call that hyperdulia because of the Latin word dulia means to honor or venerate, and she gets hyperdulia, which is the highest form. But God alone gets latria, which is the Latin word for the, the worship and adoration. And as long as we make that distinction, uh, there's no problem. It's when People will cross the line and go from uh, veneration and honor to worship. And that would be a violation then of that first commandment. But we see in the gospel that certainly Mary is given honor and respect by the angel. Archangel Gabriel appears to her and gives her a salutation, hail, uh, salve, which you know is a sign of respect. Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. And, uh, you know, Jesus you know, affirms this in his respect for her by identifying her as the woman foretold in Genesis 3. I'll put enmity between you and the woman when God cursed the serpent. She's the woman mentioned in Revelation 12, uh, the woman clothed with the sun and the moon beneath her feet and a crown of 12 stars. So uh, Mary and the saints, we, we call that veneration. Adoration, we give to God alone. To the phones we go. Jen is first up today, a first-time caller in Boston, Massachusetts, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jen, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Yeah, hi, Father John. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, this is a question that I've been really curious about. I have some friends who are grandparents who have either baptized, they were told by a priest that to go ahead and that they could baptize their grandchildren, and they did this, and I have other friends also in their 80s who said, no, we've been told you can't do that. And it's something that I, I'm just curious about as a layperson is, like, what is the, what is the Catholic teaching on this? Yes, uh, well, that, that's an excellent question. Uh, first of all, it, it would be valid. Uh, anyone can baptize, but the normal, ordinary minister of, of baptism is the priest, or the bishop, or the deacon. And... So only in those occasions where it's danger of death, in periculo mortis, as they say in Latin in the ritual, that uh, a non-ordinary minister 
which would in this case be anyone, even a, uh, a non-believer, uh, an unchristian, uh, a pagan, an atheist, agnostic, can, can validly baptize. But once you baptize someone, if this is in danger of death and they're not, and they're not sick, they are considered Catholic in the eyes of God and the Church, and therefore uh, they would be entitled and it would be expected that they be catechized. It would be uh, expected that they would receive First Confession, First Communion, Confirmation. And uh, here's what's very important. Uh, if a Catholic uh, marries outside the proper form, they get married by uh, a non-Catholic minister or by Justice of the Peace, uh, that's an invalid marriage. And if someone is baptized Catholic but doesn't know it, they're still bound by that. And so that's going to be an issue of valid marriage. And likewise, we need to have records uh, of that. So, yes, if, some, if there's a danger of death that the baby is sick and it appears that they might, he or she might uh, die, then anyone can baptize. But normally speaking, it's not advised because you certainly would want the consent of the parents, and you want commitment either from the parents or the godparents that the child is going to be raised in the faith and have access uh, to the other sacraments. And so that's why we do not suggest or promote people just baptizing their their grandchildren uh, merely because they know that their, their, their adult children are not uh, practicing their faith as they should. Does that help, Jen? Yeah, it does. It, no, it really does. Thank you so much, because I've heard very varied responses to this, and I'm, I've always been confused. Yeah, that's Thanks a, for calling. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. And that's a pretty consistent answer from my experience that we give here on EWTN is, is uh, you know, it doesn't make sense to some people that, uh, but, you know, if mom and dad don't sign off, you can't do it behind their back, right? Yeah, I mean it's an act of injustice, but also it's not fair to the to the child because now you make them a Catholic and then you're going to deny them the sacraments because mommy and daddy don't know that grandma or grandpa baptized them, and uh, you know, like I said, their marriage could be considered uh, invalid if if they're not going to get married in the church. Well, and also I can you know I think of the hoops that I had to jump through with regard to documentation when I <laughs> yeah. entered the church. I mean, my goodness, this would be a nightmare, wouldn't it? It would. You'd have to have uh, two affidavits of someone who watched the baptism take place, which, you know, if grandma or grandpa did this all by themselves in the, in the kitchen, uh, you know, how, how are you going to prove that? Yeah. Thanks so much, Jim. We appreciate the call today. Marcy is up next in Panama City Beach, Florida, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130 as well. Marcy, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hi, how are y'all? Fine. Good. So I recently heard someone say that they had a situation where they talked to the priest that the um, person was living in a state of mortal sin, and the priest, and they were saying they were concerned that if something happened to this person and they died, that they would go to hell because they were living in a state of mortal sin. And the priest said that they did not have to be in a state of grace in order to go to heaven. And... This person said, well, that's not what I was taught as far as the Catholic doctrine, and, you know, I, you know, where am I missing this? And the priest said, no, that Jesus will ask you if you want to come with him or not, or, and that's kind of the way the situation went. And then, arguably, he said he'd been doing this for 45 years, and there was no place that said that. 
Well, they said that they, you know, said obviously it's in the catechism. But my question was, they said, well, how do you approach this priest again if you're going back to confession for this priest and he's not teaching properly? And they basically said that it was like, well, you, you know, he re- he came back and you know, there's really probably nothing you can do to have him listen to you. But isn't there the bishop or someone to be responsible for talking to this priest if this is? Because to me, this seems like a very big injustice to the. Yes, uh, absolutely, because uh, as you point out, it's clear in the catechism. I, I just uh, looked it up here, 1035. Immediately after death, the souls of those who die in the state of mortal sin descend into hell, where they suffer, suffer the punishment of hell, eternal fire. That, that's as clear as you can make it. I mean, it's, that's the catechism, 1035. So if a priest is maintaining this, uh, it's, um, it's wrong, it's heretical teaching, and uh, this needs to be reported uh, to the diocese. Now, I, being a priest, know that sometimes people take things out of context. And, uh, you know, certainly I would want the priest to have the chance to defend himself. And maybe someone needs to ask him. But maybe, uh, you know, if you send an email or something where you can have a written response. Uh, again, if, you know, I don't know how you could clarify this any better. But um, I know sometimes people think they hear things. Uh, but if that's his main, if he maintains that that's not the case, that if you're in mortal sin, uh, you could still go go to heaven. Well, that's not Catholic teaching, and uh, then you know he needs a little chit chat with his boss, the bishop. Eight three three two eight eight E W T N is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Next up is Beth. A first-time caller in Northern Virginia listening on the Ave Maria app. Beth, you're on with Father Tregilio. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call, Father. Um, I'm a cradle Catholic, and I've always believed that when Mary said yes to um, being Jesus' mother, that she didn't know all the things that would happen. She didn't know what it meant, um, and that's why she pondered a lot of things. But then I read a meditation by Carl Hauslander that talked about how she suffered emotionally when she watched him grow up and take a first step and that she saw this as a way to the cross, and she knew all his life, all his suffering. So I'd like to know which is correct. Uh, Well, what the Church uh, solemnly teaches us is that certainly uh, she knew when the angel announced to her at the Annunciation that she was going to be the mother of the Savior. She knew from day one that he was of divine origin, that she was giving birth to the Messiah, to the Redeemer. Now, it's true that in the, at the presentation, when she, she and St. Joseph go to the temple and present the baby Jesus, uh, St. Simeon you know, makes that prophecy, a sword shall pierce your heart. Uh, so that's very clear uh, in the Scripture. But what does that mean? We don't know. Uh, Mary's understanding and depth of that understanding. When the three kings come at uh, Epiphany, and you know, gold and frankincense, very nice gifts. Myrrh—that's uh, something you put on a dead body for for uh, preparation for burial. So imagine, you know, it's your kid's baptism, and then someone there at at, at church, you know, brings uh, little gifts, and you know, you get a little piece of gold, very nice. But someone also brings some embalming fluid. That that is something you're never going to forget. But 
to what extent Our Lady had, uh, th that's the beauty of, of, of faith is you don't know all the answers, but you trust that God will get you through those either unanswered questions or uh, that you'll get the answer when it's, when it's God's time to do that. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Mike in Oklahoma, John in St. Louis, Steve in the Republic of Texas, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. couple of open lines for you and plenty of time for your calls. Next up is Mike in the great state of Oklahoma, listening on the Ave Maria radio app. Mike, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Trujillo. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Uh, Please be patient with me. I'm going to try and word this right. Uh, a priest one time told me that every time a man, married man and woman has relations that, that renews their covenant with God. All right, with that said, I was speaking to uh, my wife and, she, and told her that, and she goes, yeah, that's just up to childbearing years. When those years are over, that's when the relations, you know what I mean, that's when it stops. And I said, I don't think that's right. And she goes, well, you show me in the Bible where it says that I'm wrong. Can you explain this? Did I, did I say that good enough? Yeah, I think you did. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, Lord, I hope she's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, because the, the marriage covenant, between husband and wife, you know, we, we make a distinction that, uh, you know, the rodum et, non, rodum et consummatum, that the marriage is ratified when uh, the bride and groom say yes, but then it's consummated when they have conjugal relations. And when the couple, especially the, the, the wife, gets to the point where she's unable to have children, the covenant is still uh, there, and uh, the, the conjugal relations certainly continue, uh, the only thing is that, you know, there's no more possibility of, of children unless, like St. Elizabeth, <laughs> some miraculous event takes place. Um, but we would never, ever uh, teach or, or even imply that once uh, the, they're beyond childbearing years that they are not to have conjugal relations. That is uh, a sign of a fulfillment of, of that beautiful covenant. Uh, it's not the, the essence of it. It's a sign of it. Because uh, obviously it's the exchange of consent uh, that you're going to give yourself to each other and you're going to receive each other. So it's a give and take, as Saint, uh, or as uh, slipped there, <laughs> Pope uh, Benedict XVI made very clear in Deus Caritas Est that uh, divine love uh, is the uh, model for human love. And in divine love we have giving and receiving and the same uh, with, uh, especially in marriage, because it shows us that uh, two dimensions that that's there. So where does it say that in the Bible? Well, uh, it's in the book of Genesis. You know, the two shall become one flesh. You're one flesh for the rest of your natural lives. So that doesn't stop just because uh, they're unable to have children. That's that con 
that idea is not in Scripture. And Father, this this is not even a gray area. I mean, this no, has been, that's absolutely this, black and white. This has been taught always and everywhere, right? Yes, this like Saint Vincent of Lorenz, you know, everywhere, all at all times, by all credited teachers. God bless you, Mike. Hope that clears things up. Be gentle with your wife. Don't <laughs> don't tell her she's wrong. <laughs> not on Valentine's Day. <laughs> it's a nice little nice little piece of advice for me. Uh, from me. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. John's up next in St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. John, you're on with Father Trujillo. Oh, thank you for taking my call, Father. I, I just had a question. I recently heard of a form of Christianity I've never heard of before, known as positive Christianity, uh, evidently created during the Third Reich. Um, and I would like to know what this form of Christianity teaches or is, and what is the Catholic response uh, to this. Thank you. Well, I have to admit, I've never heard of that before, and uh, I've, I watch the History Channel. Um, I know that there were attempts by some in the Third Reich and the Nazi Party to establish their own form of, of a religion. Uh, they borrowed heavily from the occult and from other uh, pagan elements, and all with the idea of controlling it, not that, that they had any uh, idea of anything supernatural, of anything spiritual, but it was a way of saying, of say, the way that they were thinking that, well, there's always going to be people who want to be Christian, there's always going to be people who want to have a, a spiritual, uh, a supernatural dimension, and so let's provide one for them that could be controlled by the, the, the Nazi government. That's the only thing I could think of. Now, if there's something else... Uh, I'm unaware of. I'd have to do a little research on that, but uh, I did read and hear about that. Uh, there was even an attempt, uh, someone told me recently that Adolf Hitler had a plan to uh, kidnap and replace Pope Pius XII and then ins install his own anti-pope so that, again, he could control, not that he was had any idea of doing anything that was Christian or anything with the Catholic Church. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of open lines at 833-288-3986. Steve is a first-time caller in the Republic of Texas. Listening on Guadalupe Radio, Steve, you're on with Father Trigilio. Yes, uh, thank you for taking my call. This is a question I had on marriage. My daughter and her, her fiancé got married about five years ago. In the Catholic Church, they went through all the preparation and did a great job. It was a beautiful Catholic wedding. The only thing was my son-in-law was not baptized when he when they got married. And I, I supposedly, I think they had to get a dispensation from the bishop to do so, which I think, I know they did. Okay, two years ago, about two years ago, my son-in-law came into the church, was fully initiated, baptized, received the Eucharist, and confirmed. My question is, does this change any kind of a status of their marriage or any, 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 in any way or form? Does this have any effect on that? Uh, it, it's not a um, – that's a good question. Uh, they're, they're validly married because the bishop granted that dispensation. So there's no need to worry that prior to his uh, baptism, prior to his conversion, uh, he was indeed married uh, validly in the eyes of the church. Um, the only difference is that now that he's uh, he's a Catholic and now that he's a Christian, Catholic Christian, uh, th that's um, a bond that can only be ended by death. In very rare exceptions, if uh, a Christian marries an unbaptized 
non-Christian. And then if that marriage does not survive and the um, unbaptized person refuses to live with the baptized person, uh, there is something called the Petrine privilege where the Pope uh, can dissolve that bond because it's not considered uh, a full sacramental bond until the point of death. It's very, it's, it's not that common. It's uh, the more common one would be with the Pauline privilege where you've got two unbaptized, both husband and wife are unbaptized, and then one of them converts to Christianity and the other one refuses to, to uh, stay married with, with them. But uh, your son-in-law, uh, your daughter, uh, were valley married and they continue to be valley married. His um, baptism just elevates that to the level where it can only be ended by death. Does that help, Steve? Uh, yeah, it helps. They're, they're fully active, very good Catholics. They, they go to Mass, they act in their parish, and they are, they have recently moved, so they're trying to reestablish themselves into another parish, but they've always they've been very good, faithful Catholics. And well, so, that's great, and I'm happy for them and you. 833-288-EWTN. You know, we're just two days away from Ash Wednesday, and we hope you have a blessed Lenten season, and it's very fruitful for you. We've got some great... Uh, Lenten programming coming up for you during the next several weeks. Um, Lent today with our good friend Father Benedict Rochelle of Happy Memory. Uh, these messages literally are timeless that he sends throughout uh, the Lenten season from Ash Wednesday through Easter Sunday. And also um, Lenten reflections from uh, the Basilica of Our Lady of Walsingham in England. Uh, which we'll talk to you about the richness of the Lenten season, all right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Marilyn. She's in Goodlettsville, Tennessee, listening on the EWTN app. Marilyn, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Father. I have appreciated your common sense answers for many years now. And I have a female friend of 12 years. Uh, she is in her 60s. Um, she's a faithful, strong Catholic uh, who lives in a nursing home. And so the Protestants are um, inviting her to many of their services, and she has attended, and she has been asked to read Scripture during the services. And so um, I, I invited her to come with me to Ash Wednesday Mass, uh, and she has refused to come. She says she's happy being with the Protestants. And so I was asking you for some some loving way to help her to not lose this beautiful Catholic faith of hers. Yeah, uh, certainly um, the first and most important thing you do is to pray for her and also to ask to pray with her and... Uh, you know, if she's not going to go to Mass with you, maybe you know, she can uh, pray the rosary with you. Um, you want to reconnect her with her Catholic uh, identity, especially uh, not just uh, devotion to Our Lady, but uh, our connection to the Blessed Sacrament, the Holy Eucharist, which, you know, you're not going to find uh, in uh, the Protestant Christian Church. Uh, you're only going to find in the Eastern Orthodox or in the, in the Catholic Church. And although she may be going to these other services that are certainly welcoming and friendly and uh, spiritual and prayerful, uh, you're not going to receive the real presence. And that's going to take a little you know, time. 
you're not going to uh, argue or preach her into that, uh, but certainly you praying for her and you making some small, very small mortifications with the consent of your spiritual director or your confessor for her are going to be very helpful. But in terms of giving her something to read or having a little discussion, uh, you, you may not get the, that might not be as successful. But I would certainly uh, start with the prayer and then try to connect with, you know, uh, certainly I would say Our Lady, who is the mother of our Lord Jesus, she's called Our Lady of the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, I would certainly take advantage of that. Uh, like I said, pray the rosary with her or uh, make sure she has a statue of Our Lady in her, in her room because um, Our Lady will, will intercede as best she can. Thanks, Marilyn. We appreciate it. We'll keep your friend in our prayers as well. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. We've got uh, a couple of open phone lines for you still at uh, 833-288-3986. Scott is watching us on YouTube, and he wants to know, can any type of pastor take bread and wine and consecrate it as the Eucharist? Well, by pastor, um, if you mean any minister of the gospel, you must be an ordained priest or deacon, I mean, sorry, a priest or bishop, deacons don't have that ability to do that. Uh, we have the apostolic succession, valid holy orders, which we find in the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, and that's it. So a pastor, say a Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian pastor, uh, they do not have that apostolic succession, they do not have valid orders, and so they are not able to validly uh, consecrate the bread and wine into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Uh, Lily is up next in Dickinson, North Dakota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Lily, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Great, thank you. Um, the Lord will only forgive you if you forgive others. How do you know that that's accomplished? Like, I really struggle with that. Uh, well, if all the Lord is asking of us is that we try. Uh, we're not set in a holding pattern so that he will not hold his forgiveness until we've forgiven. He wants us, as best we can, to forgive uh, as soon as possible, but it may take us a little while uh, he's not going to withhold or refuse his forgiveness for us, though. Uh, that's that's not a um, type of thing where, you know, it's like, like a negotiation. But the same token, we say in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive. So if we refuse forgiveness and we refuse to even try, uh, we're, we're in a bad place. But if we're at least making the effort, if we say, okay, Lord, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to move in that direction. I want to be in that direction. I'm just not there right now today because sometimes people have done such horrible, hateful things to us that it is going to take a, a little bit of time. But you and I don't know how much time we have, so you don't want to you know, uh, presume and, and, and just think that you know this can go on forever. Thanks, Lily. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833 833- 2883986 Sophie would like to know why don't the Eastern Orthodox recognize the Pope as the successor of Christ? Well, because he's not the successor of Christ. He's the successor of St. Peter and 
they believe that, but they also believe that their patriarch, whether it's the patriarch of Constantinople, the patriarch of Moscow, the patriarch of Antioch, Alexandria, uh, they believe that uh, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, is the first among uh, equals, but that he does not have complete uh, jurisdiction or, or even infallible authority uh, over all uh, Christianity. And we as Catholic Christians, we, we believe that he is the successor of St. Peter, and St. Peter received the keys uh, from Jesus directly, and he said to Peter, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Whatever you declare bound on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you declare loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. So that authority was given to Peter and not to the other disciples. Now, Peter's brother Andrew is considered uh, you know, very highly regarded in the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church. And in fact, when uh, Pope Benedict went to visit Greece and met the Patriarch of Constantinople, he said, you know, Peter has come to visit Andrew, re referring to the fact that, you know, those two brothers were apostles. But Peter, you know, is the head of the church, uh, even the head of all the other patriarchs. They, they, don't, they don't believe that, but, uh, you know, it's, the Pope was never given that title, successor of, of Christ. He's the successor of St. Peter. You know, our Catholic faith should impact every aspect of our life, and we try to provide programming that speaks to as many of those areas of our life as possible. And we've got a great program at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, More to Life with Dr. Greg and Lisa Popcheck. Uh, trying to help you live a godly life within your family and your uh, intimate relationships. And uh, tomorrow their topic is, What's Love Got to Do With It? Struggling to love a difficult person in your life? Let the Pop Checks help you out. That's more to life tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio. And if you haven't heard the word yet, we've got a brand new program that follows us on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Beacon of Truth with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. I invite you to stick around and see why they call him the Dynamic Deacon. Uh, he will cover uh, all sorts of topics, have uh, various guests, and uh, it's sure to be something that you will enjoy, high energy, and something to kind of take the edge off and get you through the afternoon. That's Beacon of Truth with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is John, a first-time caller in Brooklyn, New York, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. John, you are on with Father Tregilio. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I just wanted to make a comment about a previous caller who asked about positive Christianity. So this was one of the items in the uh, party platform of the Nazi party when, uh, when they were still uh, running uh, for uh, seats in the, uh, in the German parliament. And uh, their critique of Christianity was that it was a kind of, uh, uh, had too much interest in taking care of people who were debilitated uh, and, you know, loving all races and whatever. So positive Christianity was their answer to what they thought was weak-willed uh, regular Christians. And, and that was uh, eventually the idea would have been to replace Christianity after the war. But this was their first attempt at knocking away at it. Um, and I don't remember all the details because that was quite some time ago that I was reading about it. That certainly now, sounds plausible. My, my question is the following, and uh, this is with regard to if someone has committed a, a mortal sin. So 
if you die before you get the confession, um, you know, what, uh, what is the teaching in regard to that? I mean, if, if, if you've repented in your mind, but you haven't gotten to a priest and something happens, uh, where do you stand? Yes, well, that, that's an excellent question, and that's why uh, if a person's unable to get to confession, uh, they need to at least make a perfect act of contrition. Now, if you intend to go, let's say you're on your way to go to confession, uh, and you've got a mortal sin, and like the sister told us in Catholic grade school, that infamous truck came and ran, ran you over, uh, your intent, okay, possibly, I would say probably would be uh, sufficient but I wouldn't want to take that chance. I would want some moral certitude. And the, the moral certitude is when you hear those words, I absolve you. Uh, you're taking a chance. Now, I think the merciful God is going to take into consideration somebody was sorry and they were making uh, an effort to go to confession. Uh, it's when someone's it's sorry, but they're, they, say, they say to themselves, well, I don't, I'll put off going to confession. That's not... That's not advisable. It's not prudent. Um, so I don't think God is going to be uh, uh, strict in terms of that time element, but certainly he knows the heart. Uh, he knows what's in the intellect and will uh, perfectly uh, more than we do. But uh, you have that wonderful certitude when you hear those words. So I tell people, do not wait. Do not take it for granted. And don't take the chance. None of us are promised tomorrow, right? That's right. James would like to know, what is a convincing argument to try to explain to a Jewish friend that Jesus is actually the Messiah? Oh, well, that would take a long time. <laughs> Certainly, uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, would be an excellent starting point, because Matthew is uh, writing his Gospel for a Jewish audience, and he painstakingly connects the dots to show that Jesus is the Messiah who is prophesied in the Old Testament, that's not to say that uh, uh, Mark and Luke and John uh, don't believe that, but each of the four gospel writers, each of the four evangelists, are writing for a particular audience, and so they're going to highlight and accentuate those things which they know their audience could be interested in. So I would say start with Matthew's gospel, and he will he has that line that um, genealogy which traces Jesus back to uh, Abraham, who is considered you know the the father of faith and. Um, you know, the, the very founder of, of, uh, of Judaism. All right, you ready? Okay. Every year we get this question right about this same time, Monday or Tuesday of, uh -huh. uh, of, uh, of, uh, Ch chicken. Are we talking about chicken? <laughs> nope. No chicken, but we are wanting to know. AJ wants to know before he gets started. Uh huh. For people who have given up something during Lent, can that food be eaten on feast days and Sundays during Lent? What are the rules? Father go. I say yes. Cause I'm Italian. <laughs> it depends on how you count the 40 days. That's, that's the issue. Uh, you know, uh, there's a school of thought, and it's not infallible, that uh, Sundays, one is dispensed because of the celebration that, you know, Jesus rose from the dead on uh, Sunday. Uh, and if you count all the Sundays, uh, you're going to have more than 40 if you count, you know, Ash Wednesday and uh, the, the Triduum. Whereas if you don't count the Sundays, you can still get 40 days in. And uh, so it depends on your... On your uh, 
your calculations. Um, I don't see it uh, sinful if you do follow that, but I would certainly say um, I would stick keep it to Sundays. Now, it's in the Code of Canon Law that a solemnity like St. Joseph, right. okay, that's a solemnity. That's always, that's always the big one. Always, and the, and the um, Annunciation, the 25th, if it falls on a Friday in Lent, you are dispensed, okay? And being Italian, we celebrate St. Joseph's with full gusto, being <laughs> Sicilian especially. So uh, when that happens, take advantage of it. But those are the only uh, two big feasts that could fall on a, on a Friday uh, in Lent. Tony wants to know if the church's stance on abortion has changed over the years. None whatsoever. Um, now, what developed was this, the understanding that exactly when uh, human life begins in terms of we know it happens exactly at conception scientifically, that took a little time to ascertain, but the fact that the church had the teaching, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, that Mary was, was free from sin from the moment of her uh, conception in her mother's womb, uh, you know, so uh, this is something that is not of recent vintage. Uh, abortions always considered uh, a grave mortal sin. You know, this this is even pre. This is Old Testament stuff. I mean, there are there are citations in the Old Testament where if two men get into a skirmish and accidentally bump into a pregnant woman and cause her to miscarry, then they face the death penalty. Yes, the the. The killing of, of, if you want to define it uh, in legal terms, the unviable fetus is considered abortion and it's considered wrong, immoral. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Absolutely. Benedicat vos omnipotens Deus Pater et Filius et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer Michael McCall, our call screener Matt Gubensky, with a little bit of help from Charles Beery. And our social media maven, Mr. Ace McKay. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for helping us kick off another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it tomorrow, talking faith, family, and fellowship with Father Wade Menezes. Until we get together then, God bless.